from the campus of Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. You're listening to the G Suite Podcast, where we discuss all things Zach business. Rick Betts is a Spokane native, Zag, and co-founder of HoopFest, the largest three-on-three basketball tournament in the world. He talks of his career advising telecom companies, the origins of HoopFest and Hooptown USA, and his newest adventure, a revolutionary approach to youth basketball. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in kind of a random place, um, but you and I reconnected around pickleball uh, on some level, and you, yeah. you're you're kind of a player in the history of pickleball. Is that, is that correct? A player in the history in the sense that I have played the game. <laughs> uh, the, the fun story is I went to college with a guy who was in my, uh, was a, went to undergraduate at UPS. He's in my class in my fraternity. And his father, our freshman year, ran for Congress and won in uh, the Seattle area. And I remember going to that kind of celebration party, but his dad and his family with my friend there invented pickleball on a camping trip. And uh, yeah, they're from Bainbridge Island. And so um, I remember thinking it was just a stupid game. Uh, (laughs) And now my wife's completely hooked to it and, and I'm getting there. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty fun um and i i think i i mentioned to you before it's i like it because anybody can play it and it, it's yeah. not like one of those sports where if you, you have to grow up with it most like, sports yeah most yeah you really can't have fun until you put a lot of pain and agony and learning <laughs> right. all fun the first time you're out and then shockingly it's pretty hard to get really good at it yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, that's great. Well, so so take me back, Rick, back to the beginning here. You you're a Spokane kid. Grew, grew up in Spokane, right? Yeah. And then and then you went to LC. Did you play? Now you I know you love basketball. Did you play high school basketball? Uh, no. Um, another fun fact is I got cut. Even though I'm in the technically I am in the Hooptown Hall of Fame, I got cut. <laughs> From every basketball team I ever tried out for, wow, including junior high and high school, except for the sixth grade team because I was nice to the coach's son, I think, and I was like <laughs> the last guy added to the roster. Yeah, yeah, they only had six players and needed an extra backup in case there's yeah. some foul trouble yeah. or something like that. I get it, I get it. So, and then, and you're you're a CPA by trade. I know you had uh, a, a, an illustrious career with Moss Adams. Um, but maybe take me back uh, to the college years and then kind of what what your your career journey was. And at, at one point, I know you landed with a, a master's of science in tax from Gonzaga uh, in, its, in, in its original form. We'll talk about that later, though. Yeah, you know, I think when I think back, um, my high school friends were all just off the charts, smart, talented unlike me, also athletic, they were. And, um, you know, I I just didn't really think I would be able to do a whole heck of a lot, but I was pretty good in math. And and so um, I kind of am a little happy that my self-image wasn't maybe as high as it could have been 
because I thought, well, I can't do all these really cool, high profile professions. And so I thought, well, I'll probably end up working in a business somewhere. I like math. So I think I'll be an accounting major. And, and that's kind of how I got down running down that road. And then, um, like I said, went to UPS back then they had a business department and they had accounting and I, uh, um, you know, uh, turned out I was maybe a little better in school than I thought. Um, that went pretty well. I got out, took the CPA exam my senior year, you know, back then you didn't need the fifth year. I stayed at a buddy's house and took it up in Seattle. And, um, you know, month and a half later, I get the results. I call them. Okay. I passed the whole stinking thing. And I'd already bought the books to restudy because I figured <laughs> he did not pass. Oh. However, to his credit, he ended up being the CFO of AT&T Wireless. So okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, I got off to a pretty fast start compared to him, but yeah, he left me in, you know, in the dust. Oh, I was going to say you could have sold him your books because he needed yeah. them then. Once yeah, probably did. Uh, wow, that's incredible. And so, uh, and you started, I believe, in Seattle with EY. Is that I started with EY in Tacoma. In an office that did strictly telecommunications. And, um, you know, that turned out uh, to be pretty nice timing. Graduated in 75. Um, there were no cell phones really until the mid 80s, I think. And so, and there was no internet. So, um, got into an industry that just absolutely went crazy. And um, I worked there um, in this small Tacoma office, although the clients were kind of scattered all over the country. And uh, yeah, I worked there for three or four years and then I, I wanted to get back to Spokane. And so I, uh, back then, EY had a real tiny office in Spokane. I transferred there and um, went from, it was kind of referred to as management consulting was the terminology back then uh, to auditing in the Spokane office. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And another, uh, had I stayed, I don't know, but um, one of the alumni of the office there, um, but that again, ultimately that ENY office um, moved to Seattle and, and right. in some ways the telecom group kind of disbanded, but one of the guys uh, back then, uh, when I worked in Tacoma, became a billionaire, uh, John Stanton. So um, I managed to navigate in a way that <laughs> I didn't hit any of those home run balls. By the way, no complaint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. That's funny. It's like the, you know, they always say you want the the cheapest house on the block, right? That's, that's kind of like you, right? All the, you got all these billionaires and millionaires around you. Yeah. You, know, you, did, you did well, it was a good block, but it wasn't. Yeah, you know, and I would say I'm in the sweet spot because the problem is if you've got all that money, you've just guaranteed the misery of the next two or three generations of your family. <laughs> and so uh, in the best family, we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> there you go. Oh, we're doing okay. There you go. 
So, and then you're, you're back in Spokane, and at some point you're saying, hey, I have an, I have a, a, an unscratched tax itch. I have an unfulfilled uh, longing to learn more about the Internal Revenue Code. No. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, well, you kind of. Yeah, kind of. No, I um, I stayed with ENY for a couple of years, and then I went to work uh, with a couple guys in Tacoma that broke off with ENY doing a telecom mm -hmm. practice, and that's how I stayed ultimately for my career in telecommunications. Um, but for a brief period of time, I worked with these other two guys, and it was great because we did well, but I also had a fair amount of time where I could go um, um, and get my master's. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just kind of spread my wings a little bit here. I was interested in tax and, um, and Gonzaga had just started the master's in tax, um, program. I don't, like Biden, I'm not that great on years, um, but I think it was early 80s. Um, that sounds and, about right, um, yeah. And I uh, go to class at night and I studied in the office during the day and it was fabulous. Yeah, I really had some uh, great professors, including your dad. For yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I, I used to have, it's probably in a box somewhere in my basement, but um, uh, the, the brochure for that program. Oh. And I, yeah, I think you're right. I think it was early 80s and they, yeah. they launched this Master's of Science in Tax. And then I think they educated everyone in the Spokane well, Portland it, area and they had no students left. So they folded it yeah. <laughs> until uh, yeah. you know, 20 years later or something where we, we reopened the Master's of yeah. Tax, which is, which is healthy now and strong. So, um, but uh that's that's interesting. So that that made you a zag, and I know uh, you're a basketball fan. You got season tickets. Um, eventually, though, you end up at Moss Adams and okay, McFarland and Alton at the time, right? Yes. So what happened there? I was uh, had a little office downtown working for these guys in Tacoma. All of our clients were scattered. We would just meet at the client, do the work, come home, finish it off, and. Um, Really, it was getting my master's in tax that made me think, you know, I want to join a larger firm. And um, and I was really interested in taxes. And so um, I ended up at McFarland and Alton and then, you know, ultimately became a partner there. And then in 1990, I do remember that year, we um, uh, merged into Moss Adams. Yeah. yeah. And then you, so you, you were the telecom guy, if I recall. Now this is going back yeah. to the archives for me. And you kind of expanded the reach pretty far east from Moss Adams. Isn't that yes. Um, when I started Moss Adams, you know, in Spokane, um, I don't, at, at that point, we were maybe the second or third largest CPA firm in Spokane. And no telecom practice, of course. And so, in effect, we kind of started that from scratch. They had a few clients in one of their California offices. But, um, yeah, we just started selling. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many. I think they have 
in the Spokane office, maybe 300 phone company Wow. is now. I mean, it got it. It quickly became the largest industry group in the Spokane office. Yeah. So, so how do you how do you do that? Am I, are you just you're going to Kalispell, Montana, and going to the phone company there and saying, "Hey, how can I help you?" Yeah. Um, um, I came to find out I kind of like sales, <laughs> and um, I would call up telephone company clients. And I would tell them this little white lie that I was going to be in the area and just could I come on, stop in and tell you a little bit about our firm. And, um, you know, a lot of them believed me. <laughs> and so I would figure out how to get there. And um, we knew the industry really well. And, and I mean, this maybe sounds hard to believe, but we knew it better than they did. And, and, you know, maybe in, later in our discussion, uh, the reasons will come out why, but, um, and so um, we started to pick up clients. Really, first of all, in Montana, there's companies, uh, rural companies serve most of the state of Montana, but Montana and then Wyoming and Southern Idaho. And then um, from there, the different parts of the country and then what really um, caused it to just explode is um, I kind of had the idea, and Ernst used to do this, NY used to do this, is we would um, teach seminars on telecom accounting. And most seminars, you know, are for the big shots, for the executives, okay? We didn't do it that way. We basically um, did hardcore teaching to new people in the industry that were in the accounting departments. And our theory, which I think turned out to be right, is a lot of the executives, they don't give a flying rip what accounting firm you use. And if their CFO or their you know, head accountant wants to use a firm, they're fine. They don't care. And, and so and eventually you hit, you, you opened up a Kansas City office. Is that right? And, but it was under Spokane. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, we uh, merged in a reputable but small telecom practice in okay. Kansas City. And, and we sent a senior manager and a partner there. And yeah, that office has done really well. And all wow. they do is telecom. Wow. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you had... The, the MVP status on a few airlines. A uh, million miles, two airlines. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow, very cool. <laughs> so it's, I guess I'm kind of fascinated at what it, the landscape looked like over your career because I think, you know, recently we had Cynthia Cooper, the WorldCom whistleblower on campus um, talking about and that took me the time of, you know, when you had the, the cards, the, the MCI WorldCom cards, yeah, the coolest sure. thing, you dialed the one in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're starting back, you know, I guess when we had, you, know, you just, just your landlines and then different technologies start to emerge to right. where we are today. And you retired two year ago, two years ago? Uh, again, not great on the years, but I think it was 2018. <laughs> okay. All right. So about five years ago, six years ago. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, what what is? I guess I guess the change must have been incremental over time. But um, what were some of the biggest changes in in the job and the role that you saw kind of throughout your career? Well, um, you know, we know, of course, about the technology changes in terms of uh, cellular. And then there are different forms of cellular. Now we're on 5G, um, internet. Then you get wireless internet. Um, and so, you know, the, that technology, you were all kind of aware of. And the industry is trying to catch it. And um, oddly enough, um, it's not just the big companies that have capital to invest in those technologies, but the small ones do because they get supported really by uh, the government through regulation because, okay. you know, a national objective is to have strong telecommunications in all those areas throughout mm -hmm. the country because you don't want that just in the big cities. You want the whole country to be connected. So all that was happening. And so our clients are growing, trying to do different things. It's working, it's not working. Cable TV, of course, comes into that. Um, and then all the changes there with streaming. Um, but what most people don't understand is all the regulation underneath that. Yeah. Because in the world we live in right now, there's much less regulation because generally there's not monopolies going on there anymore. So when there was only one phone company in town, then they could charge whatever they want if they weren't regulated. Well, now you can get, you know, because it's all coming through the internet, there's millions of providers for whatever it is you want, wireless, TV, phone line, right. you know, right. uh, and all that. So all this regulation is moving along. And that was really the sweet spot for accountants and consultants to understand um, what the opportunities were in that regulation. And so when you're in a regulated environment, um, obviously, you know, there's rules there that everyone has to follow. But if you don't understand the rules, you don't get the best result. And so that's what we were able to bring to our clients um and that was our focus yeah, yeah. and there was tons you know as you can imagine the government's trying to keep up with regulation right. all the time because the technology is changing faster than they can really uh understand themselves yeah yeah and it seems that more true today than ever before seems like yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah social media now and you, you got involved with the aicpa at some point uh, and we're on some some committees, uh, professional committees. Yeah. Um, and again, I think it was right around um, kind of early 80s. I had a good friend and his dad happened to be president of the ICPA or uh, chairman, I guess. It, uh, yeah. yeah. Chaired the ACPA. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, I'm getting my master's in tax. Maybe I had it by then. And I'm still, you know, a young junior woodchuck cpa um but i managed to leverage through him and his dad to get on a, uh, a tax committee and i i got put on the small business tax committee which gave me an opportunity to go 
to Washington, D.C., interact with lots of interesting people from, you know, the really big firms to smaller firms. And and that was just a fabulous um, educational opportunity for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I think I mentioned to you before, I, I'm on the S-Corp technical resource panel. And not only do I not carry my weight uh, on the intellectual yeah. side, but... Uh, I, I, I'm I'm showing up to about half the meetings, so I imagine my days are numbered. But it's been fabulous, it's actually. When I when I'm able to go, just to be around some great minds yeah. in that area, and um, yeah, I I ultimately worked my way up to the tax executive committee, which is the top committee in the AICPA for taxes, and um, and I think maybe I told you this. I had an important role there because I did not have the curse of knowledge. Okay. These guys were all, you know, guru, big four, had the code memorized and probably the regulations too. And, you know, I knew, I knew enough to um, uh, participate on some level, but when they would talk about how to lobby and do things outside the organization, it's like, guys, um, they don't know all the things you know, so maybe we need to just communicate a little differently. <laughs> so that was kind of fun because I, I was on that committee in '86, I think, when they had the big. It was a huge tax law change that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. total chaos that year, from what I hear. Um, and then you're you're on a trip back to D.C. and and I'll let you tell the story, but you're you had a USA Today, and there was an advertisement. Yeah, I um. Um, maybe to take one step back from that, I, I had a really good friend that roomed with Don Cardong. And so I got a little involved in Bloomsday right at the beginning and just saw that and how, what a great event that was in Spokane. And I loved running Bloomsday and all that. So this was late eighties and, um, there had been a sports illustrated article about this three on three basketball tournament. Um, that started at Notre Dame and then um, um, it's called the Gus Macker and it takes place in some Midwest city. And that, I thought that was fascinating. It's a big article in Sports Illustrated about it, how everybody comes and plays on this thing. And I don't know, they might've had six, 700 teams, something like that, which, you know, obviously a lot. And um, so I'm flying to DC to go to a committee meeting and I'm reading in USA Today, you know, back when, you actually buy that paper. Um, this head banner, de uh, deadline for entries into the Gus Macker. And, and then I get into Washington, D.C., have my meeting. I stayed Saturday and I wandered onto Pennsylvania Avenue. And there's this three on three basketball tournament. And I thought, wow, it's just like the Gus Macker. I can't believe they shut down Pennsylvania Avenue to do this. And yeah, you know, there's a couple hundred teams, something like that. It just looked like a ton of fun. And so I thought we got to do this in Spokane. And again, I love basketball, but you know, was certainly not a you know competitive player there. But anyway, came home, called some of my buddies, um, uh, and managed to talk a few of them into it to just kind of helping us get started. And we formed a little committee and then ultimately hooked up with uh, Jerry Schmidt. And uh, yeah, a year later, 
we uh, we started had the first hoop fest, nineteen ninety. And and hoop fest today is the largest three on three outdoor basketball or basketball. Yeah, I would team. say you know we had about six thousand teams for many years, and it's this will be our thirty fourth year, I think. And um, you know once we hit through COVID. You know, now we're around 4,000 teams, but still that's, you know, way, way above any other. A lot of them have shut down and, and are smaller now than they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you play, you play every year still. You still play. I have played in every single. Wow. Oops, wow. My goal is to make one basket, um, <laughs> you know, during the weekend, which, you know, Two out of three times I can. I play with my three sons, and you know they're better than I am, so they don't like me playing a whole lot. But <laughs> but I do get in. <laughs> so so you're setting up the tournament, and tell me about some of the early days. I mean, I know it was had it was a nonprofit. Special Olympics was the the beneficiary, right? Yeah. It's something to that effect. Um, how are you? Are you, are you calling the mayor's office and saying, hey, can we have the streets for a weekend? Or how, how does that work? Like, what's the... Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, it's a blur now that I think back on it. Um, it was a time at McFarland and Alton where I was really heavy, busy during kind of the traditional accounting season. But I was able outside of that season to spend a fair amount of time on kind of getting it going. And so Jerry and I, we formed a committee and we sort of doled out a bunch of um, responsibilities. And of course, one of them was to get the city to agree. And they're not fans of, you know, um, shutting down main streets downtown. And then really the biggest hurdle is the stores aren't real happy about doing that. Um, the restaurants are happy about yeah. it because it brings a lot. And, and um, I remember reading that Subway, which I don't know if it is now, but was the second biggest franchise in the world. Uh, they had a Subway on Riverside that had the number one sales of globally of any Subway uh, you wow. know, on a, on a Saturday and a, and a Sunday, yeah. yeah. So the restaurants love this, the stores not so much. But so, yeah, there was just a ton of logistics. We didn't have an office, there were no employees, and we didn't really know what to expect. And we got, you know, the first poster had Mark Rippon and Ryan Sandberg on it, so that got some attention. But we're coming down into, you know, it's the last weekend of June, we're coming into June and we have hardly any entries. And we're kind of starting to panic. And we were hoping for 200 teams. That's really what our goal was. Um, and think about that. If you're going to start anything and get 200 teams, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, um, now the deadline for HoopFest is basically two months before. It's the beginning of May. It's kind of the deadline for HoopFest. Well, we didn't know what we were doing. We we're trying to get it launched. So we had the deadline two weeks before. And... <laughs> literally all of the entries came in on that final day or two. And so we went from thinking we had a hundred to having, I think that first year we had 600 and some teams. Wow. And, 
Um, now, compared to how many teams we had, that seems like nothing. But if you can imagine a stack of papers, one page as an entry, and we had, you know, five or 600 of those. Um, we had to get the hoops built. We had to find the, I mean, there was so much in those last two weeks. And, and you know, and, and then, of course, we're always worrying about the weather. And then as it turned out, um, it actually went pretty well. The weather was fabulous. Uh, no massive screw ups. Everybody had a great time. And, you know, we were off and running from there. So did you have to ask for more court? Or how did you deal with it? Yeah, we had to get some more some more uh, city blocks. But the big thing was um, getting the hoops built because they were wood back then. And okay. the Carpenters Union was building them for us. And so, um, yeah, we had to beg to get some more of them right at the last minute. Wow. Wow. So it, grow, it grows over time. And, you know, today there's center court and... I think one year yeah, we ago. hire a first employee and then, you know, uh, that one, then we got a director and it just kind of kept growing from there. Yeah. And, and you've had, I mean, didn't Sean Kemp come one year? Who, who are some of the big names that have been around? Didn't you, a couple of times? Uh, he was on the poster. Okay. Um, you know, of course, John Stockton. Uh, um, you know, the funny and probably the biggest was we had Kevin Durant a few years back. That's right. That's what I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah. 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 That's pretty big. Yeah. Well, it's it's huge now. Um and, and pretty fascinating. Now it it makes some money and you guys do some pretty cool stuff around town, at least from I've seen some basketball courts at, at different parks and things like that. Uh what's some of the, the charitable work? Yeah, we donate every year to Special Olympics. Um we have built a bunch of community courts and a lot of it, we've just reinvested in the event. Yeah. And, you know, that was kind of a big uh, philosophical decision early on. You know, some people were just, we're just trying to raise as much money as we can to donate. And, you know, I was a little more on the side of, we got to make this like the best, coolest thing we can. And if we do that, we will be able to donate, but, our number one objective is to give Spokane a really great event. Yeah, and and you have, do, yeah. do you have to pay for extra police or yeah, like you're paying all yeah. the permits and yeah, yeah. We don't get credit. We there's not enough accountants in in uh, elected positions in local <laughs> government to understand that um, the economics of Hoopfest generates a significant amount of sales tax, uh, which we would hope to get credit for. Um, um, and, and, you know, I don't want to be too critical there because we have, do have a fabulous relationship with the city and the fire department and the police. And, and although we, we do pay for uh, a decent amount of that, they do a lot for us. So it's a good relationship. Yeah, no, it's always it's always been good. So so fast forward, you know, Hoopfest is cruising and a little hiccup with COVID. I think we canceled it a couple of years, two years, you know, Hoopfest. Two years, yeah. Um, but it's it's up back up and you retire and you're not one to sit still. So then you launch Hooptown out of this out of this. Yeah. 
So um, really another Gonzaga alumni slash coach, Mike Nilsson, deserves a lot of credit here. And, and I would kind of call him the father of this effort. But essentially, we worked with Adam Swinyard at the Spokane School District to really put together and launch a youth basketball league. So it's a Hooptown Youth League. We call it HYL. And um, our objective really is to just get as many boys and girls playing basketball and having fun. And so it's for all levels. Um, starts in kindergarten. You know, normally you think of grade school sports start basketball anyway starting fifth and sixth grade we started in kindergarten they play on really low hoops um parents coach uh and um yeah that first season let's see i think we had 3200 kids participating wow. Wow. that's a significant increase in the number of young kids playing and um in this past year i think it was 3800 and it really is hoop fest in its kind of a subsidiary hoop down youth league is um really doing it on behalf of the schools and it's not just spokane public schools it's the valley and mead and and uh you know surrounding districts i think there's 13 districts okay. in all involved and really the the schools are what makes it so uh, great is that we can keep the price down. You know, there's free participation for kids that need that. There's um, scholarships for kids that can't pay the full bore, but the full bore is dramatically less than what it used to be to play recreation basketball. And the, because uh, the schools really, because it's a school problem, uh, program, they're letting us use their gyms for free and then we're doing reusable uniforms and um, doing everything we can to just deliver a great product but as inexpensively as we can so yeah super happy with how that's going yeah well, as you know my my son plays in it and loves it yeah. and there's a um there's a fill in a gap maybe or or a uh a theory behind what you're trying to do there, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, as I understand it, you know, youth sports is getting so serious so early, people are getting left out who may just be at a, a level and haven't developed yet or are more recreational than competitive. And so this is kind of looking at, hey, you get to play at the level you want to and have fun. And is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, what, what I would say is costs have been rising. Kids are becoming less and less involved in sports. You know, why is that? TV, uh, computer games, thousand different things that distract them from sports and fitness. And and one of the things, if we're just looking at basketball, but it certainly applies to other sports, is you do have kids that are really serious about it, probably because their parents are serious about it, and they've got some skills, and they want to play on the very best teams. And so you end up, um, because HoopFest used to run the AAU program, which is kind of the top level um, 
players kind of started in the fourth grade and through junior high. Um, you end up getting these, what we kind of call super teams and they play the other teams and they win, not exaggerating here. They can win by 40, 50, 60, 70, even a hundred points they can win by. Well, that's a, that's, unless you're the parent that somehow thinks that's cool, everybody else is not happy. It doesn't make the good players any better. And then you have all the kids that lose games by huge numbers of points and that's not fun and they quit playing. And so really over the years, this kind of, we call it club basketball was just heading downhill, fewer and fewer teams, largely again, because these super teams, but also because of just all the other distractions away from uh, traditional right. sports. And so, uh, you know, our objective, and again, we have to credit definitely uh, the school district here, is, you know, we're trying to reverse that trend. And girls basketball had just all but died. Um, and and you think of Spokane, we've had some unbelievable girl basketball players, you know, go on and play division one basketball and be really well. Well, um, you know, we got high schools that can barely have enough kids, girls to try out, to even try out to make the girls team so so um you know by starting at kindergarten at the very youngest age we're just trying to have fun it's just all about having fun play for a couple months and then come back next year um and um, um and then we schedule to try and match skill level so that we avoid these blowouts and and, uh, and, you know, there's a rec league and a more competitive league and then even a club league. We're just trying to schedule by skill ability um, and discourage coaches from, um, you know, traveling all over to put all-star teams together. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because you talk to like the Gonzaga coaches, they'll tell you. We want, we're looking for D1 athletes to play lots of different sports. And, you know, this whole super team thing at the grade school, no, that's, you know, that, that, that isn't what's giving us future players. So even at that level, uh, coaches just don't think that's a winning approach. What you want is your, kids and in my case grandkids playing with their buddies they go to school with right yeah right. that's the win right uh, yeah it was uh i I'm, I'm one of the coaches on my son's team and uh I'm, I'm always thankful that there's no double dribble or traveling at least they're light on the double dribble uh, traveling. yeah <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be a different but, uh, ball he's game. gonna be in the third grade next year so you know uh, that's gonna, gonna be a different game he'll be yeah. ready for now I you, I see that Hooptown USA. I want to say there's maybe a sign coming into town or something like that. Yeah, you guys, yeah. Do you have that trademark? Do you have that protected? Yeah, we trademarked you... it. Okay. Yeah, and uh, we guard it. Uh, thankfully, uh, Leon Hayes, um, you know, or is a well-known uh, trademark 
and patent law firm, and they've been kind enough to handle not just the trademark of Hooptown, but also Hoopfest. And, okay. um, and so, um, yeah, we protect that. We're, we did, actually, this is interesting, we licensed it to Dick's Sporting Goods. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they will be using it, you know, with our trademark um, in their stores. Yeah. In just in Spokane or everywhere? Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Wow, very cool. Very yeah. cool. So, okay. And really, um, we I'd thank another Gonzaga alumni, Matt Santangelo, who really had the idea. A lot of people contributed. Uh, Lewis Lee is actually the one that came up with the name Hooptown. We we were thinking about other names, but Matt's really the one that uh, kind of had the idea of launching this idea that Spokane is the number one, you know, basketball community. And uh, we felt like we deserved it between Gonzaga, between Hoopfest, now what we're doing with HYL. Um, you know, what worth Eastern. I mean, it's just a great basketball community. For sure. For sure. Now, it, kind of switching gears here, you and I have another connection. And it's actually where I met your sons growing up uh, at Camp Reed. Um, how, how did you, and you had some involvement. I don't know if you were ever on the board there, but I know you've always kind of been a you know, really, my um, involvement is I've always been really good friends with um, some of the past directors and, yeah. and my three or two of my three sons uh, became counselors there. And so I've just always supported Camp Reed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. For some reason I thought you were a board member at, at one yeah. point. Uh, also a neat, a neat, a very special place, I would say. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, now, Rick, you've done a lot of things, right, career-wise, and always been really active in the community. I'll note that you just won a Washington Society of CPAs uh, community award uh, for the state. Um, what what advice do you have to a freshly minted Gonzaga grad, or any grad for that matter, as they embark on you know, the post collegiate phase of their life, career and, and other things? Uh, well, uh, I was supposed to prepare for that question. Or am I just <laughs> winging the answer here? Uh, no, you know, I authentic. think, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it helps if you've learned to work, um, which hopefully you can credit your parents for having enough fortitude to make you do chores. Um, I've got a list of chores my mother made me do that would, you know, cause people to just not believe me that I actually had to do that stuff. But, you know, you learn to work uh, at home, you learn to work with summer jobs and, and, um, and then, yeah, you go through school and hopefully do your homework. And so uh, when you get that first job, um, you've got some passion and motivation there. I always felt like it was, and I didn't really feel like I was competing with others. Although I guess you kind of are, you know, to advance. Um, 
but it felt competitive to me. I wanted, I, I was motivated to do well. And, um, and I didn't really like necessarily work massive hours, but I wasn't going to let the clock stop me from accomplishing something that I was interested in doing. And so I think, you know, as I look at my friends and others around me, um, um, you know, that's a big part of it is just, can you work? I had a speaker once that um, was the CFO of Microsoft. And he told me, I don't know if this is uh, true or not, but he told me, if you put aside Gates and Balmer, a lot of the executives at Microsoft grew up on farms. They learned how to work. So I think, I think, I think one, hopefully you're starting <laughs> so that, you know, the, those first weeks on the job or those, that first year, you know, it's now you got to really, you can't screw around after an hour of class, you know? Um, so then I think, you know, to me, I was always kind of forward looking at what I, um, what new thing I could do. You know, I wanted to be kind of an idea guy and, um, um, I think that made a difference for me. You know, so many people are just happy to do the way they did it the last time or the last year. Uh, it didn't matter really what profession you're in. And, and I think um, it's fun and exciting and takes you somewhere where your, your mind is always wondering, is there a better way to do this? Or am I really, is it worth my time? Or could I be doing something more important to get a better result? And that just kind of um, never being really um, married to the status quo, the way it's always been done. Yeah. And then I would say a couple things for the accounting crowd. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I hope more students start to go back into accounting. I know the numbers have dropped. I think they're going to figure it out. Um, again, I went into it because I kind of like math and didn't know what else to do. Um, but, you know, accounting really is the language of business. And if you look around, there's a lot of executives that kind of came out of accounting. Either they're still in it or they moved on and just used that knowledge to help them just understand business better. Um, but for me, who stayed in accounting, you know, my whole career, um, I realized one thing. Um, that was very helpful for me because I did a lot of presentations to boards of directors, okay, or management for that matter. And the bottom line is no one really cares about what happened in the past because by the time you're explaining it to them, they already know that. <laughs> and that's why everybody, <laughs> that's why people fall asleep. They, they literally fall asleep in the meetings where you present the audit or that because they just don't care what they care about is what's going to happen. And that 
the accountant is the person that can really explain that. And uh, once I really understood that and implemented that, it just made all the difference in the world. The other thing that people care about, and I think you'll relate to this when I tell you, um, they care about how they're doing compared to everybody else. The example I always used is, you know, as a parent, my son came home and they got a grade. What was the first thing I wanted to know? Well, what did everybody else get? So if you got a D and everybody else failed the class, that D, hey, congrats, you got a D. Well, what I found in working with clients, and again, it wouldn't matter if you were in public accounting, whatever you're in, um, people really cared about how they're doing relative to their peers. And so, so my little special advice for um, accountants coming into the industry is think about those two things and understand them. You know, you got to do, you got to process what's happening in the past. But really, the real reason to do that is to have a better perspective on where you're headed and then to be able to look at where you're at and where you're going how does that compare to what else is going on and um, i think people that really understand that and are good at that um, have great careers how's that fabulous sir i appreciate your time always good to see you and uh yeah keep on keeping on Thank you for listening to the G Suite Podcast. This episode was produced and hosted by Andrew Brasich and edited by Jack Talbot. To find more G Suite and the many other podcasts on the Gonzaga Podcast Network, remember to check out gonzaga.edu slash podcasts. Thanks again.